This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, we ask our biggest and only truly national news publisher, Stuff, why it's just rejigged its reporting so it'll have fewer reporters in their regional newsrooms and none at all at some times of the week. It comes just after Stuff staff walked off the job last week in a protest over pay. So, what happens next? Now, publishing local newspapers anywhere is a tough business these days in the internet age. The rivers of gold that once made papers so profitable dried up long ago. And in some places, so-called news deserts have sprung up in places where the presses have closed down. This week, we hear from a former American newspaper editor who's charted the effect of all this in the US. Now, Kenton Bird also spent six months here back in 2010 checking out our local papers. So what does he make of them now that he's back 12 years on? Places like Cambridge and Warrensville and Gordonton uh, all have uh, a strong main street uh, with small retailers uh, that are the bread and butter of those uh, community newspapers. But first, the clock is ticking on the so-called media mega merger to create a new public media entity in 2023. Is it running out of steam as well as time? The Prime Minister has revealed to News Hub some MPs are about to call it quits. And she's looking to scrap some of the government's reforms next year, admitting Labour's tried to do too much too quickly. In a sit-down interview with political editor Jenna Lynch, Jacinda Ardern reflected on the hardest moment in a year she's described as challenging. That was how News Hub at Six introduced its end-of-year interview with the Prime Minister last Thursday, one of a few set-piece media chats in which Jacinda Ardern signalled that next year's focus for her government would be on core policies. And Jenna Lynch reckoned that the creation of a new public media entity, also known as the mega-media merger of RNZ and TVNZ, probably wasn't one of them. Do you think you've got too much on? Uh, yes. Yeah, I do. So over the summer we will be thinking about areas that we can peer back. Are you ready for the TVNZ-RNZ merger to be dropped? Oh, no. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. We're absolutely committed to it and uh, things are going well. 100% that merger will go ahead? Well, 100%. These things change. Have you heard something else? Broadcasting and Media Minister Willie Jackson there telling News Hub's political editor Jenna Lynch that the government's public media plans are still go, as far as he knows. But while his Prime Minister was doing end-of-year chats with the media about what's to come, Willie Jackson isn't doing any with Media Watch about the public media plans, as we'll hear. Now, earlier on Tuesday, the Prime Minister told Newsroom that the government would pause and prioritise the most important things for us, and the Prime Minister said the media merger is not number one on the government's agenda. And the Prime Minister also told political editor Joe Moyer that a lot of people say they don't have a view on the media merger because there isn't a lot of information out there about it. But the policy was greenlit by her own cabinet almost three years ago now, after dumping a previous policy and a previous minister whose public media plan revolved only around RNZ. And one opportunity last weekend for the minister in charge to help explain it all to the public didn't really end up helping much at all. Uh, no, sometimes perception is completely wrong. You know? I'm not asking if it's right yeah, or wrong, yeah. but I'm saying it's just as important. When it comes to an issue of trust, perception is just as important as the reality. Mm-hmm. So, so whether I'm not or not... not sure if I agree with you on that, Jack. Okay, so... Willie Jackson clashing with TBNZ's Jack Tame on the Q&A show last weekend about the subtle interplay of perception and reality in an interview that got tetchy at times and a bit personal. 
Yeah. You're, you're doing a very. You're, 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 saying, no, okay. you're doing such a negative interview today. I'm very disappointed in you. But you're you're, you can, you're hammering every part of this entity. That's all about our public uh, our identity. It's about expression in terms of the New Zealand voice. Don't you want to hear that? You guys. Now, there's nothing extraordinary really about politicians and presenters butting heads, though this one made headlines and pumped up the pundits because some saw it as the minister trying to throw his weight around on a state-owned outlet of which he is a shareholding minister. On Midweek Media Watch this week, our weekly catch-up with Karen Hay on nights on RNZ National, Hayden Donnell took a look at how the media reacted to that interview and how it overshadowed his news that the government will legislate to make Google and Facebook's owner Meta pay New Zealand media companies for the news they share online and profit from. Hayden also looked at a couple of revealing rulings from a media standards watchdog and how claims of media manipulation soured miracle drug news from Pharmac. Trust us? The question should be around public trust in you, Pharmac, because you didn't tell us the truth. If you missed Midweek Media Watch last Wednesday, it's on the RNZ website in the Media Watch section of the RNZ app or on our podcast feed, available wherever you get your podcasts. But this was the first time any TVNZ programme has addressed the issue of the media merger, outside of brief mentions in the One News bulletins, and that's in spite of the fact that TVNZ itself as we know it would cease to exist under the current plan. Now that long encounter with the minister last Sunday was described as a train wreck in the Herald soon after and, like this, by RNZ's political editor Jane Patterson the next day on Morning Report. How did you see that interview? Uh, car crash was my um, view of it. This has been a problem for the minister since he's taken over. The uh, merger has really become, it's, it's had a political target on its back. The next stop on the line is the appointment of a board to run it and a chair to be chosen before Christmas. And the reported shoulder-tapping of the National Party former leader Simon Bridges as chair has been interpreted as a possible bid to counter the perception that the new entity might favour the Labour government that created and funded it, and that's only caused more negative reactions. And all this was frustrating for the minister, but also for the public, because the media coverage so far has focused almost entirely on the public media entity problems and planning, and not any potential positives of beefing up a public media entity. Now on the AM show the same morning, the Prime Minister tried to paint a far more positive picture of it. What can we do to make sure that we strengthen public broadcasting in New Zealand? Now, currently, of course, with viewership and listenership declining, people are turning to alternative methods to access information and stories. How do we make sure our public broadcasters have a bit more flexibility to be in the places where the New Zealand public are? And that's what this is all about. But the Prime Minister also painted a bleak picture of the public broadcaster we already have when she told Ryan Bridge this on the AM show. Getting rid of our public service broadcasters or having Radio New Zealand collapse doesn't help them and it actually doesn't help New Zealand. How close is RNZ Uh, to collapse? The potential collapse of RNZ isn't actually imminent at this stage, but it was public support for the public media entity project collapsing, according to a story in the Stuff Papers which said the majority of people don't want RNZ and TVNZ to merge. According to a November poll from the Taxpayers' Union on Curia, 54% said they did not want the state broadcasters to merge. And the Taxpayers' Union doesn't want that either. It's been campaigning against it on the grounds that it's wasteful spending. And they'll be pleased that their survey was reported and widely referred to by the media and other pundits. But how many people were polled for that survey and what exactly was the question that was put to them? 
Well, Stuff's story didn't say, but it did say the poll found a quarter of people were unsure about the public media entity plan. And no wonder when there's been so little in the media about what it might actually offer, alongside plenty about the opposition to it among other media, with their own vested interests, and political parties in opposition to it for their own political reasons. On Tuesday, News Talk ZB's Heather Duplessy-Allen told her listeners that if Labour were smart, they'd kill the plan. Labour can't afford another three waters if they want to secure the next election. They should be looking right now for a way to get out of this. And she wasn't the only one comparing the plan for two media outlets to the one for three waters. Similar problems between the three waters and this is that it seems the solution is just centralisation, bureaucracy, you know, more and more sort of people as opposed to actually more and more outcomes. And I think you're absolutely right that as part of that sort of problem definition, you've actually got to determine what is the KPI for success from this merger? Nobody really knows. In her right-of-centre column in the NBR this week, Brigitte Morton also said the RNZ-TVNZ merger was a political repeat of Three Waters' missteps. Though there's not really that much that links water and media reform beyond partisan political noise and a reaction against centralisation as a solution. In that chat for the NBR with Brigitte Morton, Brent Edwards, who's formerly a political editor at RNZ, pointed out that other countries have joined up multimedia public media networks paid for by the public, like our mates across the ditch, though Brigitte Morton didn't think that was an attractive option. On a per capita basis, I think public broadcasting here gets less than, say, in Australia or New Zealand. Yeah, you've got to also remember that Australia and Britain are much bigger media markets as well. So whilst you might have giants like the BBC, you've still got enough space in that market for other big players to be quite influential, to have quite, you know, a lot of influence and a lot of ability to add the resources to, you know, hold the government to account, which is a really important part of a public broadcaster, I think, or any broadcaster. And, you know, having worked in Australian politics, there is much more complaints, I think, about the ABC than I've ever seen about TVNZ or RNZ. But while there are lots of complaints about the ABC from politicians who lean to the right and the hostile Murdoch press and other media rivals, the public that pays for the ABC seems to value it. The ABC tracks public perceptions of its performance and its value three times a year right across the country, and this year's community sentiment, according to its latest annual report, has improved on last year. 78% of Australians believe the ABC performs a valuable role, and the same proportion say the ABC provides good quality television, and two-thirds say it provides a number of shows that they personally like to watch and listen to. Nine out of ten said the online stuff was good, and they were less keen on the radio, but that still had the approval of a clear majority. The ABC annual report for 2022 also says it continues to outperform commercial media in the provision of news and information about country and regional Australia among city and country and regional populations. And their study also found 77% of Australian adults aged 18 to 75 trust the information the ABC provides and significantly higher than the levels of trust recorded for internet search engines, commercial radio, commercial television, newspaper publishers and Facebook. But people here have not been asked by anyone if they'd like something like the ABC or BBC and what they provide. In the NBR, Bridget Morton concluded that the media merger was merely a political liability now and on ZB, Heather Duplessy-Allen echoed her like this. It smacks of a hidden agenda because there is no plausible explanation for why we need this merger. What is the problem we're trying to fix?
But one clear problem is that we are now spending almost as much public money per capita here on public media as they do in Australia, but getting nothing like as comprehensive a service back. The two networks the government plans to replace attract and retain audiences that skew older than the national population, and that's not a good sign for the future. And in his story about the Taxpayers' Union survey which headlined public opposition to the media merger, Stuff's Glenn McConnell noted that the survey also said there was more support among people aged 18 to 39. A third of people that age supported the merger, a third opposed it, and a third were unsure. Now clearly, last weekend on TVNZ1, Willie Jackson failed to make the case for something that will make a difference. So this week we asked if he would do so here on MediaWatch. But his office said simply, Willie Jackson's not available this week, and next week he's overseas. Now while there's been a lot of heat about that Willie Jackson TVNZ interview last weekend, one with National Party leader Christopher Luxon on Morning Report last Wednesday was maybe more significant for the future. For the first time, he definitively said that if Aotearoa New Zealand public media is in place by the next election, and he wins that election, he'll undo it all, even if it's costly to do so. And in Parliament later that day, he told RNZ's political editor Jane Patterson... Well, it's important that the TV, TVNZ, for example, continue its commercial model. We've seen incredibly you know, good media operations. Take NZME, it's a commercial organisation, it's done incredibly well. What TVNZ about, can continue to do the same. So the opposition then seems committed not just to preserving the status quo, but even restoring it, if they have to, having decided that the new public media entity is, in Christopher Luxon's words, a solution in search of a problem. Well, next month it will be three years since an advisory group, including TBNZ and RNZ executives, first declared that the status quo was not an option and persuaded the Cabinet a new entity was the way to go. The government and the existing entities have yet to find a way, though, or the willingness, to persuade the public of that or to persuade the government's political opponents, evidently still wedded to a system within which a highly commercial state-owned TBNZ is already operating on a not-for-profit basis. It's already overlapping online as well with the much smaller RNZ, which has sold its land and buildings in recent years to maintain services, even as government funding across the media has swelled to more than $300 million a year. And up until this point, a government that says it's committed to public media hasn't really committed much more money to its only really national public broadcaster. Now, RNZ won't collapse, as Jacinda Ardern hypothesised this week, unless a government actually decides to collapse it. But, independent of each other, RNZ and TVNZ will be even more vulnerable in the future to other media picking off their ageing audiences, while hundreds of millions of public dollars will still be sunk into the media each year with, potentially, less and less impact. And the consequences and the cost of carrying that on long term could just end up being far greater than opponents of the merger are saying out loud right now, both financially and in terms of political risk and public opinion, which seem to sway the pundits and the politicians, who also seem easily persuaded that perception, amplified by the media, really is reality. Media Watch last weekend, we heard from Tom Hunt, a reporter at Wellington's daily paper, The Dominion Post, one of many papers published up and down the country by Stuff. Now, Tom Hunt is a delegate for the main journalist union, Air 2, whose members walked off the job last week, and some even picketed Stuff premises in Auckland, Hamilton, and Wellington. Now, this was prompted by a below inflation pay offer, which Tom Hunt described as an insult to the journalists that Stuff claims to be so proud of. 
Now, just before that interview, the company's bosses had got in touch, asking to meet again, and in a minute we'll hear from one of them where things stand now. Now, Stuff is in fact by far the biggest news-gathering and publishing operation which aims to cover the entire country top to bottom. It also employs more journalists than any other news media company, among its staff of around 900. And the whole thing is led by, and owned by, its former chief editor, Sinead Boucher, who bought the entire company from its reluctant Australian owners in early 2020. Now, the company that once bought TradeMe to get ahead in the online game and then sold it on for more than a billion dollars later only ended up costing Sinead Boucher one single dollar. But that deal saved the company as we know it, as Tom Hunt said in that interview last weekend. And he also told us another issue upsetting the staff right now, as well as pay, is a controversial rejig of its reporting in the regions. Amongst all this other stuff you find out, there's massive restructuring out there. The one thing they did good was have a kind of a last in, first off policy. So it meant the people who are really entrenched in the communities out in Southland, Palms and North, Taranaki, all those places, they're the ones kind of generally staying, which is good. But, I mean, it's definitely been unsettling. Dom Post journalist and Etu Union delegate Tom Hunt on Media Watch last week. Now, Stuff Management insisted that their regional reorganisation doesn't mean any job cuts overall or that local news will go unreported. But there are now fewer reporters in the local newsrooms that produce papers like the Timaru Herald, Southland Times and Manawatu Standard. Each regional newsroom will still have an editor, reporters and visual journalists, but in some, there may be no reporters at all at night or at most weekends. On Morning Report last month, Nelson Mayor Nick Smith, formerly an MP in the city for more than 30 years, was alarmed by reports that the Nelson Mail's new staff would drop from eight journalists to just three. I really did uh, choke on my cornies uh, when I heard staff say that these cuts in journalists in regional New Zealand would strengthen local news. Often staff uh, and Radio New Zealand uh, rightly calls out politicians for spin, claiming these uh, large reductions in regional uh, journalists will somehow strengthen local news is really pulling the other one. Now, since then, Nelson Mail reporter Sherry Savignon has resigned and joined Nelson Mayor Nick Smith's communications team. And the main reporter for Nelson City Council, Scaraboni, has resigned from the Nelson Mail as well. And Media Watch has been told the Mail has now just one full-time staff reporter and three part-timers, and another Nelson News editor is yet to be appointed. So this week I asked Stuff's Chief Content Officer, Joe Norris, can local news really be covered as well for Stuff's papers with fewer local reporters where that news is actually happening? What we've done, Colin, is that we've set up effectively an internal news service, which is based uh, right across regional New Zealand. Uh, So we've got a group of reporters who can cover any story anywhere at any time. And then we also have local teams that are based um, also in regional New Zealand within regional newsrooms. And that consists of an editor, uh, reporters and visual journalists. And they cover um, stories that are happening in their local communities, they get out into their local communities physically, Um, And again, those two teams work really closely together with really strong communication. And is it right that the complete headcount of journalists at the company hasn't actually reduced as a result of this, still the same number of positions? No, that's right. So what we've been able to do is effectively just move resources around, move move um, people's responsibilities around so that we make sure that we've got good coverage right across regional New Zealand. Uh, for instance, vacancies in some newsrooms, we're able to cover those vacancies from elsewhere in the country. 
Um, and equally, if there is um, a large amount of news happening in one particular region, but it's quieter somewhere else, our teams are able to, to move across and support. So, for instance, we were really struggling to get reporters into Timaru um, in the last year. And what this has meant is that um, if the Timaru newsroom needs a, a bit of help from another newsroom, we're able to do that much more effectively. It, it's not a kind of a beg and borrow, but this is now just people's jobs that we work across a network um, rather than within individual teams. There were reporters that were, um, well, let's call them lifers, quite entrenched in their local communities, that those ones would be the ones more likely to be able to stay under this system, which does mean, I think, in the end, that there would be fewer local reporters working full-time in those newsrooms where you have newspaper mastheads? Um, that's not quite how it works. So what we did was we um, we recognised that there were um, a, a large group of people who work for us and have for many decades in some cases who are really entrenched in their local communities. And we wanted to make sure that as we made change, we didn't lose those people. Equally, there were some um, newer, younger reporters who were cutting their teeth in the regions with a view to moving into our metropolitan newsrooms. Those that have been with us the longest will stay connected to the local teams. And then some of those younger reporters who, who tend to have more mobility and be looking to move through our network of newsrooms will move into this group regional team, which gives them the capacity to move around newsrooms and from regional newsrooms to metro newsrooms more effectively. But does this also mean that in some of your uh, newsrooms, say, for example, Timaru that you mentioned, or in Vicargill, both places where you have uh, daily papers, that there might be night times and maybe even the weekends where there are no actual local reporters on shift at all? Um, we've, we've always had that case, Colin. We know it's difficult to fill 24-hour, um, seven-day rosters. Um, but what, what this does mean is that we will always have someone who has the responsibility for covering news um, if it happens in that region. Well, let's just take one example, uh, the Nelson Mail. The local MP, Nick Smith, he believed the number of reporters would drop from about eight based in that Nelson newsroom down to three. We understand that, you know, just in recent days, two quite senior and experienced reporters uh, including one who covered uh, Nelson City Council, has has resigned, one of whom has actually gone to work for Nick Smith. So does all that mean you'll find it difficult to report Nelson News in the future? Um, there certainly is some irony there, isn't there? Mm. Um, so, yeah, look, through, through the process, we had a very small number of people who decided that they wanted to pursue other opportunities. So two, two people have gone to PR. One of those has moved into Nick Smith's office, as I understand it. Uh, one has moved to Radio New Zealand. And then a fourth person had some personal commitments that they've decided to make a change. That's pretty inevitable when you move through a change process that people take stock of their lives. That would be a possibility. But, look, I'm really, really pleased um, we've been able to recruit... A a fantastic group regional editor who is Victoria Guild, who was formerly the editor of the Nelson Mail. Um, we're, we're just in the process of re recruiting a new editor for the Nelson Mail, and I'm really, really pleased with how that process is going. And the editors themselves are happy as well because they know that they can get the support when they need it to make sure that they've got great content for, for their local audiences. Is this something you might revisit if you find that actually reporters don't find it satisfying to be covering you know, regional news from regions where they're not living? I mean, I see what you mean about smoothing things out and being able to cover gaps. But, you know, in the end, for journalists, it, it may not prove to be all that satisfying to be covering local stories, but not to be where those, that local news is happening.
Oh, I'm not sure that that's the case. I mean, journalists just love great stories. They don't necessarily have to be 1K down the road from where that story is occurring to just enjoy the thrill of covering a good story that's appreciated by audiences. Um, I think if you look at, at your own team, Colin, you're based in um, central locations and you cover content from across the country. So it's it's done really effectively. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I, I don't accept that that's not a satisfying job. Great, great stories are great stories wherever you're based. Well, last week uh, we also spoke to Tom Hunt about the industrial action. What's the, the latest in negotiations with the journalists uh, belonging to the ETU union? When Tom spoke to you last week, he described the positions as achingly close, and I absolutely um, endorse that. And we've had really constructive conversations um, with the union over the past week, and we're expecting to settle early next week. Mm, he did say achingly close, but he also said that uh, you'd had a, a payoff he described as, as an insult to the journalists that stuff claims to say are so important to them. So I wonder, has there been a loss of goodwill among the staff? Because when I think back to when stuff came back into local ownership as the result of uh, the now owner, Sinead Boucher, then chief uh, editor, you know, buying it for a dollar in that spectacular deal in 2020, a lot of enthusiasm for that. But is that still the case? Is some of that goodwill now? perhaps dissipated? Yeah, I, I don't want to speak for others um, because obviously, you know, everybody has different perspectives. But my observation, and I move around the country a lot, I spend time in, in newsrooms in different parts of the country. And I, look, I think our team of journalists understand that they believe in um, our mission and why we are here, why we exist as a media company. Um, but from time to time, there are things that people feel uncomfortable about. And, um, you know, we've moved through a negotiation to renew the journalist collective agreement. There is always going to be rub through that process. Um, I mean, one thing that has been said to us, uh, sometimes on a confidential basis by people working for stuff, by news journalists specifically, is that a lot of the focus and attention of the companies going into digital things, podcasts that are perhaps a bit more uh, glossy and um, you know involve outside production and so on, and that somehow the focus of the company has been pulled away into that sort of area and the investment. Is that a concern coming back to you as uh, head of content? Well, look, every now and then I do hear sentiments of people who have been particularly committed to a task and they see investment occurring elsewhere. But but as as you know, Colin, and, and anyone working in a media company, you need to make sure that you're where your audiences are, that you're innovating and, and making sure you're as relevant as possible. Uh, but journalism of all types is important to us and we're continuing to invest huge amounts of resources, more, more than any other media company, in covering news right across New Zealand. In the reports about the industrial action, one of the things that was said was that you know, one of the reasons you felt stuff couldn't offer the pay rise you might have liked to have given uh, to all your journalist staff was the rising costs and inflation pressures that are affecting all sorts of businesses. But you also specified something like a rise of around 30% in the price of newsprint. For all of the digital transition that's happened, are you still in that position where 70 75% or something of your revenues is still from subscriptions and sales of, well, let's call it the old-fashioned printed newspaper being sold in stores and delivered to letterboxes? Look, print is still very important to us from a revenue perspective, and um, you rightly point out that both reader revenue via subscriptions and advertising revenue flows into our print editions. But increasingly, uh, we are effectively monetizing all of our digital audiences. Those audiences are very large. We reach a um, a huge penetration across New Zealand between 70 and 90% in every region of New Zealand, so, and, and advertisers understand the value of that. So we're certainly shifting the dial, um, but these things don't happen overnight. So is it, is it in the region of 70% of your revenue would still be from print products? 
Um, look, those numbers are commercially sensitive, Colin, but that, that's not an accurate number. We've certainly shifted the dial. Um, I think that's a position from a couple of years ago. I mean, that paper problem is one that's not going to go away. We've had the closure of that mill in Kaurau. You know, the, um, the, the paper now being produced, I think the closest sources. Tasmania, um, and I think yep. e- even even the Fairfax newspapers in Australia are not printing in Tasmania, ironically, because uh, they're trying to spin out their supplies of, of paper, which is a weird situation. So is the future of actual printed papers, you know, some of these mastheads of yours in print for well over 100 years, the, are, are they up for review at some point in the future? We're constantly reviewing the print portfolio and making sure that it's still relevant for a critical mass of subscribers and and readers um, uh, who buy through retail. Um, Look, increasingly audiences will move online. I can't give you a time frame for individual publications, but we are constantly looking at at making sure that we're still relevant in each of our local communities. It was the Chief Content Officer at Stuff, Joe Norris. In the meantime, Stuff has been at pains to point out there are no plans to stop printing any of their existing regional papers. But in his weekly commentary, Nightly News, former New Zealand Herald editor Gavin Ellis said recently, print editions of local dailies must be in doubt, with the costs going up and the circulations going down year on year. And he wasn't just talking about the papers at Stuff. He said the North Island dailies, owned by the rival NZME, the publisher of the New Zealand Herald, are facing exactly the same headwinds. And last week, NZME reported the closure of the office of local paper, the Danny Burke News. Its reporter will now work from home, and the owners have appealed to anyone able to house more than a century's worth of the Danny Burke News archive to get in touch. Now, Gavin Ellis said that that pattern of staff cuts, shared content and reduced frequency has already played out at regional and local papers in many English-speaking countries around the world, and papers closing altogether have created so-called news deserts in some towns and regions. Gavin Ellis pointed to a report by Northwestern University, which estimated that a quarter of newspapers in the US, about 2,500 of them, have gone out of print since 2005, and within three years a third of newspapers will be gone. Now, none of this is news to a former newspaper editor turned journalism professor in the northwest of the US, Dr Kenton Bird from Moscow, Idaho. And in 2010, he came here to New Zealand to check out how our papers were doing, as he told RNZ's Jim Mora at the time. So I'm just looking at my map of the North Island. I've seen dailies from... The New Plymouth, the Taranaki Daily News, I've seen the Dominion Post, um, Hawke's Bay Today, the Gisborne Herald, and uh, Bay of Plenty Times as well. Okay. Um, my trip to the South Island uh, begins next week, and so I expect I'll come back with a suitcase uh, full of newspapers from the other half of the country then. But Kenton Bird didn't just stuff papers into a suitcase. He blogged his whole trip around the country for six months, creating a fascinating snapshot of how our papers were back then, which is still online now. However, back in the US, things were getting worse, and former Baltimore Sun journalist David Simon, the creator of the TV series The Wire, memorably told a 2016 congressional hearing into the issue this. The next 10 or 15 years in this country are going to be a halcyon era for state and local political corruption. It is going to be one of the great times to be a corrupt politician. (laughs) You know, I I really envy them. Now, later that year, Donald Trump got elected, swamping America's news deserts, lacking in trusted news sources, while research showed that his backing slumped in places with higher-than-average news subscriptions. 
Meanwhile, some newspapers that had survived Craigslist and eBay were getting picked off by vulture investors, and in 2018, the ailing Denver Post told its own asset-stripping owner, Alden, to sell the paper and get lost, a career-ending choice for the top editorial team there. And a former Denver Post editor, Jeffrey Roberts, told me this at that time. It's not just politics. It's not just about Donald Trump. It's about all sorts of things that are important in in your community. And that's what's missing when newspapers get decimated and, you know, other types of news organizations can't fill that void. Well, same here in New Zealand, you could say. So when Kenton Bird from Moscow, Idaho, arrived back in New Zealand recently, he was delighted to find that those daily papers he read and analysed here 12 years ago are still going. And when he popped into RNZ to catch up, I asked him if he thought they were as good now as they were back then. When I arrived, I was impressed that uh, the papers were, I believe I called them, lively, interesting, and fun to read. Clever writing, strong headlines, uh, strong um, local focus, and uh, that still seems to be the case. Uh, The format has has changed. Most of the regional papers I read were broadsheets at the time. Now they're tabloids. But the weekend papers, which uh, presumably have more um, in-depth analysis, uh, more space for the larger photographs, uh, continue to be in that broadsheet format. So um, I appreciate that. One of the things that was top of mind for you back in 2010 was you were starting to see the emergence of what became news deserts in the state. So what is the situation now? I'm sorry to report that the downward trends have continued. The number of uh, titles uh, is diminishing on the average of two per week. The small towns and rural areas that perhaps most need a local news source are the ones that are losing uh, their community newspapers, and and that's cause for concern. And uh, I wrote about this uh, focused on uh, the uh, the papers in the West, where there are both literal deserts and uh, news deserts, and uh, <laughs> not much has happened uh, that would change my pessimism. Uh, as their budgets diminish. But the the bright spots, which I called the blooms in the desert, are new digital independent startups. Uh, They're not uh, reliant on advertising or subscriptions. Uh, They have a new funding model that's primarily uh, non-profit, some corporate uh, grants, some donations, some uh, memberships uh, similar to what we have with public radio, one in um, our capital city of Boise called the Idaho Capital Sun and uh, one in nearby Spokane, Washington, uh, covering religion, ethics, uh, and values. They, and they sound really quite niche publications. So is it that a specific audience that's prepared to... Uh, pay for that to be produced? Well, through donations and uh, through their subscriptions, but they're they're filling a gap. Uh, I'm hoping that that model will spread uh, as the the daily and especially those weekly community newspapers decline. There was a situation that unfolded which made me think back to your visit all those years ago, but this is the Denver Post. The newspaper was taken over by an organisation, I think, called Alden, that invested in quite a few papers. But the Denver Post's own 
editorial staff came out against them in the newspaper. The Post continues and I think is is doing the best it can under the circumstances. Uh, but you're right that without that close attention to what uh, local governments are doing, what county commissions, um, it, it's very difficult for the, the public to, to stay abreast of, of what's going on. Yeah, and actually you made a point of this in that article you mentioned that you wrote uh, about these expanding news deserts, uh, that even even the fast-growing areas are not now able to support a kind of functioning newspaper or news organisation. And the, the challenge, of course, has been compounded by COVID. COVID has put the final nail in the, the coffin uh, for other papers, largely through the, the loss of uh, the small businesses that made up the, the advertising. And that only gradually has come back. But a labor shortage has made it difficult for uh, the daily newspapers in um, my part of the country to find carriers for uh, home delivery of the paper. I, I uh, believe today, Kenton, by pure coincidence, is World Newspaper Carrier Day. Perfect. And, <laughs> and I only know that because I looked up uh, Gannett, the newspaper group, because I'd heard some disastrous revenue figures and we're about to lay off an, another um, a tranche of journalists. In fact, yes, here's the statement from their media division head, in the coming days we will be making necessary and painful reductions to staffing, etc. And so Gannett, one of the biggest newspaper, if not the biggest uh, newspaper publisher in the, in the US? By number of readers it is. I, I think Gannett had a lot of papers in Midwest, Great Lakes area, where the population growth has now shifted to the so-called Sun Belt. Well, the, the venture capital firms have taken advantage of the weaknesses in the newspaper industry, have cut the papers back. Uh, that's been one of the, the sad developments. Uh, cities with great newspapers are now struggling, and local entrepreneurs that have tried to uh, buy the paper away from the vulture capitalists, but uh, without success. I'm thinking particularly of Baltimore Sun, uh, one of those uh, papers that was great uh, for most of the 20th century and fallen on hard times since then. So when you were here in 2010, I mean, you remarked to Jim Mora uh, back then on RNZ National that the online transition of, of our papers here might be around about five years behind the US. We still didn't have at that point premium content or digital subscriptions, basically getting money. It was all being given away for free on the internet, uh, except for a couple of uh, business publications. That is in play now here in New Zealand. One thing that I noticed in 2010 was the internet service, uh, Wi-Fi, fiber optic, was slow, expensive, and unreliable, especially in the rural areas. That's one thing that has been remedied. Uh, I remember how difficult then it was to get uh, streaming video. So now the, the infrastructure is in place, and I think that's cleared the way uh, to be digital first, and um, uh, I am a subscriber to uh, the New Zealand Herald's premium content because uh, I know there are uh, things beyond the paywall that uh, I, I want to know about, and I think the same is true in the States. Are you surprised then, Kenton, to be back all these years later? And those newspapers that you looked at so closely back then, Taranaki Daily News, Hawke's Bay Today and so on, they are all still 
in print. Some of the little community free sheets that you might have seen back then have uh, been axed in the years since, but there have been so many reorganisations. If you had asked me as I was leaving in 2010, do you think these papers will still be here in two years, five years, uh, ten years, I, I would have predicted some attrition. Uh, and so it suggests to me that there there's perhaps a resiliency in the, the New Zealand character uh, that uh, continues to support and uh, appreciate the values that these community papers provide. Uh, I think there's also the presence of a strong local retail market. You know, the arrival of, of uh, Costco in Auckland notwithstanding, <laughs> my wife and I continue to be amazed as we travel around the Waikato region, places like Cambridge and Warrensville and Gordonton uh, all have uh, a strong Main Street uh, with uh, uh, small retailers uh, that uh, are the bread and butter of those uh, community newspapers. Uh, that is, is no longer true in the, the U.S. Back in 2010, there wasn't a lot of pressure to represent the Māori world. Uh, and they weren't especially inclusive. Uh, we still know that there are very few Māori journalists throughout the industry. There's currently a, a cadetship and a mentoring program to try and increase this. Most media companies now have Māori editorial strategies and Māori uh, content strategies, which they never had before, Rautaki Māori. Have you, even in the short time you've been here, noticed a difference in the uh, presence of Māori language and Māori issues in our media? That was one of the first things I observed uh, on uh, arrival, uh, was the degree to which the Te Reo Māori was uh, appearing in print and uh, on the air. Vocabulary, um, the presence of Maori political leaders was uh, maybe a little more more visible, uh, and the, the bylines, the the, the journalists, uh, eye opening for me coming from a, a place we have a strong uh, Native American presence in my part of, of Idaho, uh, but there's next to no visibility in print or broadcast media. Professor Kenton Bird from the University of Idaho in the west of the United States, here again 12 years after his first visit, checking out the health and wealth of newspapers up and down this country in the days when the internet was already undermining the news business and creating news deserts across the US. And you can hear more from him about that on the RNZ website. Just look for the title, From Rivers of Gold to News Deserts and Green Shoots. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend. We'll be back with more on the media after the 10pm news next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch talking to Karen Hay on nights. And then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.